last week uh, I was uh, not not with you because I was speaking in in Rugeley, uh, which is my old church, and uh, uh, we we picked up some of the uh, guys that were coming with us and got to the edge of Wrexham to find out that there was a flood alert, but this time we had faith to drive through it, so we drove through the first flood and then got to Turnhill uh, and got turned round uh, and uh, because of floods and uh, then uh, got to within uh, 10 miles of Rugeley and there was another flood and we got turned round and actually headed back up the same road uh, with the words... I don't know whether you ever thought about this as a parent. Well, I've only ever experienced this as a parent, but not, neither as an equal, with Ian in the back saying, I feel ill. <laughs> Uh, and it, I don't know what it does to you, because when those words come out of somebody's mouth, if you're driving, there's a sense of dread that comes over you that what could happen next. Anyway, uh, I have to admit that uh, uh, we arrived very late, and I've never done that before. I was, the guest speaker arrived late. And uh, so one bloke, he came to me, don't ever say, don't repeat this back to me, he said, uh, uh, would you like to come and pray? I said, no, to be honest, I'd rather, I'd rather have a coffee if I could have one. So, <laughs> so we, we had a cup of coffee and, and I just got up and preached and that sort of, but God uh, was with us. We preached uh, on the baptism in the spirit and uh, saw lots of people responding to be filled with the spirit. So it's back to me this week and uh, we're going to look at the subject of slavery together. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn to Romans uh, chapter 6? I tried to fuzz the picture because uh, the, the real one was a bit disturbing. I thought, well, I better fuzz that because it doesn't look that nice. But Romans uh, chapter 6 and verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then are we to sin? Because we are not under law but under grace by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Uh, for just as you were once presented um, uh, your, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For uh, when you were slaves to sin, you were free uh, in regard to righteousness. But uh, what fruit were you getting from, uh, from that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end uh, of those things is death. Uh, but now uh, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that get, uh, that get, you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, uh, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, in this passage, uh, we have a, a, a description of 
slavery. It's easy, it's an easy um, to understand illustration if you are in the church that Paul is writing to, which is Rome. Because there would have been a quite a large number of slaves uh, that were part of the church. So it's a good illustration for him to use. And if you weren't a slave, you certainly knew about Roman slavery. You were living in that context of uh, your ordinary life. You would have witnessed and experienced slavery. And certainly you would have had a friend or a relative or somebody uh, that was a slave. But Paul is asking them to contrast and compare two kinds of slavery. He wants you to contrast and compare the sin, uh, the slavery to sin, and the slavery to righteousness. And verse 15 begins with a what then? Similar to uh, chapter 6 and verse 1, what then shall we say? And Paul's asking the readers to stop and think. What then? Stop and think. Having heard that you have been saved by grace, that your old life was crucified with Christ and was buried with Christ, and you have been raised into new life with Christ, what then are we to sin? And the idea is that we are to do something here that I think that we don't do very often. And, if, and that is that you look at Christ, you look what he's done, you look at your sin and you go, nah. Why would I want to sin? Why would I want to sin? I look this way, I look at the cross, I look at the, the resurrection, I look at him as a person, I compare it to my sin and I go, no. Why would I want to? And this is why Paul cries out in, in, in words, by no means. And I, I don't know whether you've realized this yet, that sin is not actually dealt with by your strong will. In fact, your strong will will not cut it. You won't do it by just gritting your teeth. But what Paul says is that you will do it by looking and focusing on the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross. That that is the way that you are released from sin. So when you're moving towards sin, Paul says to you to do something about it. And he says, if you are moving to sin, why don't you stop and think? And it's something that we ought to say to one another, isn't it? It ought to be something that is in our psyche. I'm moving towards to sin. I need to stop and think right now. And then he goes, what then? And then he goes this, doesn't he? By no means. Because he stops, he thinks, he looks at the cross, he looks at his God and he goes, by no means. It will never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. It's absurd. It's unacceptable. It's wholly to be rejected because I've compared and contrasted the two. And so Paul appeals to the knowledge of his readers As I've said, they were familiar with slavery and he hammers home something that a slave is completely at the disposal of his master. That's the way that it works, guys. If you're in slavery, you do what the master wants you to do. Jesus once said, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, uh, making uh, that point, he said, look, nobody can serve two masters. You're either at the disposal of this one or you're at the disposal of this one. And Paul is making the point 
that for all of us it is a choice in whom and which master will you serve? Will you serve the master that is called sin or will you serve the master that is called righteousness? In the church in Rome, there would have been slaves that weren't just taken uh, by captiv- into captivity by strength and by force. There were actually some slaves that had freely uh, given themselves, uh, sold themselves uh, into slavery, that they would have done that so that it could provide for them a roof over their head, food in their bellies and security for their family. But whether they were taken captive or whether they did that as a, as a free will offering, as it were, to themselves uh, and to them, they were still marked as their master's possession. They were still marked. It didn't matter how you became a slave. It matters that you now were. Now, we have to look the other way around here to understand Paul's thinking. He's not saying that all slaves are required to obey their masters, which actually is what I was taught as a young Christian man. You must obey your master. He's saying that the master we obey shows what slave that we are. So in verse 16, he says, You are slaves to the one in whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, leads to righteousness. So according to how you behave, according to the way that you speak, according to the way that you are, it denotes which master you belong to. And I would like to look at those two masters this morning. I'd like to look at sin the master and righteousness the master. We'll do them the other way around because I didn't want to depress you and just leave you depressed and crying over your coffee. So we'll look at the, the sin first and then the righteousness and we'll try and crank it up a little bit, at least make it a bit happy, okay? So firstly, let's consider this wonderful thing called sin the master. <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, Honestly, it's going to be a grace message, but we'll get there in the end. So to do this properly, I need to confess that I'm going to go back and try and put it in context and just hope that Rupert didn't cover some of this stuff last week when he looked at chapter 6 and verses 1 to 14. When you look back uh, into that chapter, uh, you find a description of a great conflict uh, and sin is a conflict, isn't it? In the, remember that Paul is writing to the believers. Uh, so he's not writing to non-Christians, he's writing to Christians. And he's describing something here of a great conflict, a battleground that is typical for the believer. So we mustn't ever get out of our heads that we're going to breeze through life and arrive at, the, at glory. No, it's going to be a battleground and it's going to be a conflict. So who and what makes up this conflict? Well, you see this in verses 12 to 14. First of all, we find out that there's a description of a king and a throne and a reign. So verse 12, do not let sin reign. That's what's being contested in this passage, a throne. The word word reign simply is from the verb form uh, king, and what we're trying to get under, understand here is what Paul is trying to get to. Do not let sin reign. That sin is powerful. Sin is strong. Sin is influential 
and, and influences huge bodies of people. Sin rules. That's the first thing. They go, mm, no, sin rules. Can you wait to the next bit to make, so I can make you happy a bit later? Secondly, there's a challenger to a throne, a revolutionary, if you like, a rebel, uh, a horrible, nasty, horrible king and, uh, that wants to take over a kingdom. And his kingdom is called the kingdom of sin. Do not let sin reign. Did you hear that? Do not let this king and his sin reign. That's what it says. Don't let sin reign. It's a revolt. It's a mutiny. It's a coup. It's it's to gain a throne. That's the idea. So what is this? Well, when this king comes with his sin and he's wanting to take a throne, we're called to what? Lie down, play dead. Let it cuddle you, caress you. Let it, let it into your mind so that you can enjoy it for a little bit. No? Come on, this is a fight. This is a battle. We're called to resist. We're called to fight. We're called to win. It's the onward Christian soldiers type of attitudes. Come on, guys. We've got to fight this one. We're in a battle. That's what we're called to do. Three, there's a place that you are under attack and, and, and where the challenger from the throne will go for. Namely, your body. Magnificent thing that it is. Why are you not agreeing? Didn't always look like this, I'll tell you that. But <laughs> just does now. Okay, here we go. Look, look, there's a place. Do not let sin reign where? In your mortal body. That's where sin will attack you. It will get you through your body, in your body. So how does that work? Let's describe it like this. Four, there are sort of secret agents that you've got in your body. Nasty, turncoat, horrible secret agents. And they've been planted inside your body. Did you not know this? If we to x-ray you now and stand you up, they're crawling around all inside you. How does Paul describe this? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. It's the desires that come up and they surface. And it's okay to have desires. I desire my wife. It's okay. It's legal. I'm all right, we're going to come back to that one in a little bit. That's a good desire. But when that desire runs wild, it becomes an evil desire and it takes over. So it's in your body and it's the the desires that take over. Then five, I don't know whether you noticed this, that surrender to those evil desires is possible. So verse 12, you get the word obey. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. If sin, the master of the revolt, takes a desire captive, you will have a defeat. There will be a defeat. Six, you may be captured and turned round and used by the enemy for unrighteous purpose. 
These are the parts of body, the, the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the hands, the feet. We'll put it like this, the sexual bits. Verse 13, do not go on presenting the what? The members of your body to sin as what? Instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. Seven, you may feel that your master has more to offer. Isn't that true? Hey, this is good, guys. It's like that, isn't it, sometimes? I know that you've heard me say this before, and it is not to appear uh, as, a, as, a, as a, a ringtone, which it did the last time that I said it. But it's true that sin is good. Sin is fun. And that's what happens. We can get into this thing. We can go, hey, I, I like this. I, I actually like sinning. It's true. I, look, am I the only pastor that says this? Yeah. It is, isn't it? Sin's great. And it has that. In, but look what happens in verse 19. It says, that well, because sometimes we can think, hey, my, this master has more to offer and there is a certain freedom that comes with it. I enjoy this. Verse 9, I don't want to change my life. I'm enjoying being sinful. Verse 19, for just as you as presented as your members as slaves to impurity, lawless will lead you to more lawlessness. So get into it. And it won't end there. It will grow and it will fester and it will become massive in your life. It might begin with, have you ever heard, heard this? I've heard this when I've been sitting, you know, someone will come and see you and say, but it's only a little sin. And you want to go, not for long. And they go, and they, well, they say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that lawlessness will lead to lawlessness. Once you are on that track, unless you repent and come from it, it's going to go worse. And they go, oh, no. And the usual thing is, no, I'm stronger than this. No, get, come on, wake up here. No, that's not the way that Paul tells you. This, it leads deeper in. Once you start on this track, it will take you deeper in. So would you like some examples? Okay. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about sex. That's good. Okay. We'll come to that in a minute because I know you will want to hear about sex. Because because we, I know what your life. You're a visitor here. They're just uh, obsessed with that sort of subject. No, it's not true. Okay, let's do. Uh, it's not true. I'm only joking. But we will come to it. Let's do that. Okay. Firstly, let's take food. Let's take food. Food actually serves us well, doesn't it? I, I have to say, I love food. <laughs> it's fantastic. I just love it. Uh, it I and. So sometimes what I really enjoy is, is something like where, where uh, Callie and I do something special. So it's not beans on toast. You know, we, we actually, we do something, you know, and Callie will say, what starters will we have? And what main meal will we have? And what are we going to do? And I'm like a little excited boy. I'm just, oh, Sainsbury's, come on. And, and you know, we're making it. And, and I don't laugh at this. I, I like to lay the table and get the music on and light the candles and put the bottle of wine out and that sort of stuff. And I love it. Love it, and it's just wonderful, and I love this sort of stuff. But when sin captures that, it becomes gluttony. If it, it's okay for you to like food, but once food takes hold of you and becomes an evil desire, it becomes gluttony, or it can become bulimia or anorexia. Basically, the desire for food has ruled you. 
it's become a rule. And your body has become a tool of unrighteousness. It's the same thing for drink. I, I actually we think that drink serves us well. I had yesterday a purple moose. I love purple moose. I drank the wrong one. I drank somebody else's, but I still liked it. <laughs> uh, I just got the bottles mixed, mixed up. It's a lovely microbrewery in Porth Maddock, and there it was, the purple moose. I even took a photograph of it and sent it to my daughter. Here they are, purple mooses. I loved it. And I, just, it's, and I sat there really enjoying my purple moose. But Tim's purple moose or whatever. But you see, if the desire... Is, is taken over, then it becomes alcoholism. And our body becomes a tool of unrighteousness. Let's do sex. No, no, that's the wrong word. <laughs> Let's do sex. Here we go. Sex is brilliant. Absolutely stunning. I have to say, sorry about this in front of my... I love it. I just absolutely... It's fantastic. I c- uh, uh, it's also in front of my daughter, which is really bad, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, it's, oh, what a, no, don't go there. You know, it's, it's designed for marriage enjoyment. And come on, great. <laughs> but what happens is that sin captures it. And, and what, what righteousness does is righteousness place, places it in the right place, at the right context, at the right time. Sin takes it out of that context, takes it out of those things and puts it in the wrong place at the wrong time and it becomes pornography, masturbation, fornication, adultery, uh, uh, gay relationships. And our sexual bits, according to this passage here, our sexual bits become tools of unrighteousness. Let's do last one, shall we? The desire for rest and sleep. You should sleep. You should do. You should all sleep and rest. Actually, I think Uncle, Uncle Dr. Jonathan would recommend that you all have uh, a, a good eight hours sleep. And he would recommend that probably that you went this side of midnight, students, not that side of midnight, that you tucked in nice in your little duvet, in your onesies, all, all before midnight, not after midnight. The, particularly the onesies with the ears on, they're good. But it's all before midnight and that's what you're supposed to So you're supposed to wake up fresh. That's the idea. But if sin captures you, it becomes what the Bible calls sloth and it becomes unrighteousness. It becomes laziness. It's meant to bless you. It's meant to reinvigorate you. But if sin captures it, it becomes a tool of unrighteousness. You become slothful and unlazy and dulled. So there's the thought train. Ask yourself this question. When you look at those things, why would you want to have sin as your master? Why would you? When you look at the way that sin as the master treats you, why would you want this as your master? He is horrible, destructive, lying, abusive. He doesn't care about you. He just cares that you are in captivity and what Paul describes as bondage. Because that's actually what you are. 
If sin has taken over, hear this, Paul describes this as you are in bondage. So here's the good news. We're moving on now. You can all go, oh, he's not going to mention sex again. So we're all right. Okay, verse 17 and 18. Paul does this. He says, thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Here's the good news. What has happened to you is worthy of worship. And if you are battling with sin, one of the best places that you can place yourselves in a th- is a thanks be to God place. It's interesting that people that, who do sin tend to move away from it. And Paul's going, thanks be to God. That's the first thing. Then he goes, you were once slaves to sin, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness. What's the key? You you were once slaves to sin. I am not that person I now am. That person, according to the Apostle Paul, is dead. I was dead. I was dead in my sins. Now I'm alive to Christ. This type of slavery for you as a believer is actually over. Sin is not your master. A greater master, a different master has come in and has set me free. You are actually, hear this according to a biblical and powerful description. Verse 22, but now you have been set free from your sin. You don't have to be like this any longer. It's good, guys. You have to hear this. I don't have to live like this forever. Some people think that it is the way that I have to do, that I have to live. But it's paradoxical because you've been set free to become slaves. But this is a different master, a master that you will look at and go, I want to obey this master. Now, that's different, isn't it? I have to obey this master. This is your new master. You look at him and you go, I want to obey this master. So let's get on to the good bit. Righteousness, the master. I have to admit that um, for the theologians amongst you, uh, this, uh, and Kali will tell you this, I've really struggled with this part of the sermon um, because I, I had a concept uh, of what Paul was talking about that has been in my heart for a long, long time, and it had to go. So, and uh, having uh, read several commentaries to try and prove them that I was right and they were wrong, I realised that the commentators were absolutely right, and I've been an idiot. So, uh, this is the revised idiot version. Uh, my 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 master is now righteousness, and the question is, what does Paul mean? I am now a slave to righteousness. Now, Paul usually, the way that Paul works is that he's going to, if he writes a letter, he introduces it and then he develops it as it's going on. And right at the very beginning, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, 16 to 17, he introduces the concept of righteousness and being a slave to righteousness. And he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So if we look at Paul's thinking here, he says that righteousness of God is revealed. It's something that is displayed. It's something that is shown. It's something somewhere that you can gaze on. The righteousness of God, according to this scripture here that Paul introduces, is revealed in the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Miss a bit. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is the key point here. John Piper, uh, describing the gospel, says this, The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who died for our sins and rose again, who is eternally triumphant over his enemies, and that there is no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. The gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross, and the effects of the gospel are what? Received by faith. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is nothing other than the life which is given to those who believe. So having the righteousness of God as my master is faith in the effects of the gospel. And that is your first tool. I have, I believe in the work of the gospel. Do you know, that's that's the first point. I I have got faith in this. I believe in the effect of the gospel. My first reaction to sin, which clings, as the writer of the Hebrews says, so closely, which entangles me, is that faith in the gospel I'm going to believe that what occurred on the cross has an effect in people's lives. We respond to it by faith. We are believing people. The Bible describes us as believers. But suddenly, when we're struggling with our sin, we don't believe that it can be conquered. And what we, we have to come back and go, no, I'm going to believe it can be conquered because I believe in the work of the cross. I believed that Jesus dealt with all sin for all time. That's the gospel. What does that mean? That includes my sin and these sins. That Jesus dealt with my sin and all my sins for all time. I believe that sin's power has been dealt with once and for all on the cross. No, more than that. I believe that sin's power has been dealt with on the cross and in my life for all time. I believe these things. I'm living now by faith. What do you think faith means? It means I'm going to believe the work of the cross and apply it into my life. So the question is, do you feed yourself with promises of the triumphant cross and triumphant grave, or do you feed yourself with the sin that so entangles you? What do you feed yourself in? What do you believe? Do you believe the sin, or do you believe the gospel? Sometimes I think we just need to get some scripture in our head, don't we? Like Romans chapter 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over us for us all. How will he not with him freely give us what? All things. 
Does this need to be struggled? No, all things. Well, what about this? No, I can get out all things. Can I overcome this? No, all things. But you don't know how long I've had this. All things. But it's going to take me years to get this right. Now, all things. Either Scripture's true or it's not. All things includes you and your sin. There's nothing that is impossible for God. The gospel is the good news that God gave his son. So to obtain everything that would be good for us, to to prosper us, what does it say? And not bring us harm. Therefore, the gospel is the power that gives us victory over temptation, gives us victory over despair, gives us victory over pride, greed, lust, all of those things. The gospel alone is the one thing that can triumph over every obstacle, whatever you may conjure, whatever it costs. Please stand in the gospel. Hold fast to it, believe on it, feed it, save it, count it, the most precious thing that you have in your life. Do you know there used to be some stickers when I was little? There were two stickers. There, was the, there were pre-millennialist stickers, and they were done in the old design of the Coca-Cola thing that it was that Jesus saves. And then there's the strict and particular Baptist ones. And they were the counteraction to the, to the sort of all the, all the theological whooshy-whooshy of the Coca-Cola about Jesus saves. And they had the one this, the gospel saves. Do you know that? Do you hear that? Come on. The gospel saves. Well, he just saved me, didn't he? I became a Christian in 1947. No, the gospel saves. The gospel is a saviour. The gospel saves you from what? Your sin. When? Then? No? Then and always. The gospel continually saves. We know to have faith that the gospel can save us. Martin Luther said this, hear this. He said, the unrighteousness, this, sorry, this righteousness is given to faith rather than a divine quality to admire. It's true, isn't it? Oh, look, you know, isn't the gospel wonderful? No, it's not a quality given to us. It's given. It's something that is imparted to us. Theologian Schlatter In 1935, he said this. Paul speaks here not of an attribute of God, but of an act of God. That's something that occurs. And when I see this kind of master treating me in this sort of way, I think, don't don't you love this kind of master? The one that sets you free? The one that releases you? the The one that doesn't want you to be in bondage anymore? This is what I'm having faith in. But it's more than faith. Romans chapter 6, verses 7 and 11. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've, been died, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to the sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. You're going to say to me, Nigel, you don't realize that this sin, it's just too powerful, just too strong. I, I, I just cannot see a way out of it. We have said that the gospel, that righteousness of God is revealed. We've said that we have to grasp it by faith. What are we grasping? 
Well, firstly, Paul tells us that God's righteousness is actually the vindicating act of raising his son from the dead. What does that mean? That everything that was needed to be done in regard to sin was done. How does God prove that? How does he prove that? Jesus proves it on the cross by saying, it is finished. But how does God prove that? How does God prove that the sacrifice was enough, that all sin was dealt with? He does it by raising his son from the dead. So not only do we have to have faith in the gospel, we are wrapped up in the events of the gospel. Sin died with the death of Jesus. Life came with the resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean? It means this, the power of the resurrection is not without effect on your life. Or to put it another way, the master that you now enjoy obeying has the greater power and applies that power into releasing you. The power of the resurrection for you to change is at your disposal. Romans 8, verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your, what? Mortal bodies through the spirit that, what? Dwells in you. In regard to sin, your sin and my sin, apply faith, but also know this, that once you engage in that faith, the greater power is available for you to see it defeated. The power of the resurrection is available for you to conquer the sin forever. This is a power that causes what? This is the power that causes dead things to rise. This is the power that causes dead things to live what does sin do it deadens you what does the power of the resurrection do it brings you life do you know some people don't actually know what that life is because they've been so used to the consequences of living a dead life they don't know any difference and here it comes (sighs) i the power that causes i like that don't you Oh dear, look, look at this, Ephesians chapter one nineteen. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards who? Those who believe. I know that the majority of you are going, yeah, all right, a bit ide- idealistic, Nigel, theolo- theological and all, all, that sort of spo- all that sort of stuff. Bit of fiction. Do you know, I don't blame you for feeling like that because sometimes, you know, you can, you can often feel that, will I ever defeat this sin? But if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, it tells us why we don't defeat the sin that we should do. Because it tells us in Ephesians 1, uh, uh, verse 18, that the eyes of our hearts have been dulled. They cause us to not see. So sometimes you actually can't see. That's what, the, that's what sin does. It causes you to not realize the mess that you are in. We can be not fully aware of its deadening power, its ability to conquer our lives. Sin's tactics are to make you to not see. 
The other reason that can come here is that demonic power is, is at work. And sometimes we're just not aware that this is a demonic thing, that actually it's an evil thing, that it's wrong and it's just horrible. And that we sort of say, you know, we don't like to think in terms of the devil working, but the devil works. And the third, so we don't see him at work. We don't see that, you know, that my eyes have been blinded and the devil's at work. The other thing that we don't see is God's power at work in us through the work of the cross. And sometimes the only way out of this is to actually contrast and compare your sin to the effect of the resurrection. You have to go back. You have to go and go something like this. The, the power of the resurrection. Let me try and measure that. You have to go, the power of this sin, not. And sometimes what we have to do is that we have to, you know, what is the usurper doing in my life? What is the destroyer doing in my life? We have to have faith in it. We have to know that we can conquer this. We might have to speak to it. We might have to receive prayer and ministry because it's got, it's got a, there's a demonic hold. But it can go because the power of the resurrection brings life. Finally, there's one more thing. That, that's about your master. Not only should you know the power that is at your disposal, not only should you speak to it on faith, but in, you know, should you act in faith, but you need to know this. Your enemy is utterly defeated. It is not an enemy. It is dead, dusted, gone, finished with whatever. There is no... Look, we'll do this and we'll read this and we're nearly at the end. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. See to it, what? That no one takes you captive by what? Philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements of the spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't let yourselves be deceived. Verse 9. Okay then, what should I replace my thoughts with? Verse 9. In him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him. Wallop. Who is what? A little weedy type of person that you really nice gentle Jesus. No, rubbish, come on. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him who is head of all rule and authority. Rubbish the sin. Come on. In him you were all circumcised. You don't have to do that bit. With the circumcision made with hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We'll just leap over that. What? Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through what? Faith in a powerful working of God. There it is. Who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with him. What did Jesus do? He forgave all our trespasses. How did he do it? He cancelled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to shame and he triumphed over them. It's good stuff. 
The battle with your sin is actually no contest because it's already win. You can do this. Sin has to lose. It does. It's not like Chelsea, Manchester United, which way will it go? Which will, will it be a draw? No, not ever. It's, it's like putting on the football team that will never lose. Not mine and Rupert's experience. But it is like this. This, this team will never lose. The sins have been forgiven. Do you know how it's described here? It's described as a mountain of bankruptcy, which you have no way of paying back. I can never pay these debts. I can never have any hope in paying them. But Jesus goes, I'll pay the debt. I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll sign the notes. Do you see that? I sign the notes. They are paid for. I love that. What is the note? Uh, A public defiance nailed to the cross and holding it up to all those that would condemn you, blackmail you and destroy you. (laughs) Paid. Do you know that? Your sin is paid for. It's paid for. Jesus on the cross releases us of the hold of our accusers. Don't you love that that hymn? He breaks the power of cancelled sin. Come on. Not as he just cancelled your debts, but he's actually disarmed their power. How do I know that? Do you hear that? It's defeat, it's defeat and disablement, not just defeat. He was suspended there. He was bound head and foot to a cross in apparent weakness. They thought they had him. This is the Son of God at his apparent weakness. This is now our point we can destroy him. But he in his weakness, hear this, he in his weakest moment, and your life is tied up with his, defeated the enemy. Your weakness in Christ is enough to deal with your sin. He fought them. He grappled with them. He mastered them. He stripped them of every weapon that they could throw at him. He won. Therefore, you can win. Don't you love your new master? Your master, don't you want to be obedient to that kind of governor? The one who will fight for you like that. The one that just says, have faith. The one that wants you to look at your sin and laugh and go, no, it's powerless, really. The one who defeated, no, more than that, defeated and humiliated sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> he, how, how is that summed up? If God is for us, Who can be against us? How is that summed up? He who did not spare his own son, but gave gave him up for us all, how will he not, what, with him graciously give us, what, all things? We're back there again. Who will bring a charge against the elect? You nasty little sinner. You defeated person. No, it's God who has justified, who will condemn. 
Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, who was raised and who was seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding from us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, danger sword, as it written for all day long? That stuff, you know that bit. No, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. Through what? Through stiff upper lip? No, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that this wretched sin will not, neither death, nor health, nor nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in Christ, will be able to separate me from the love of Christ. Go dead, sin. You are dead. Live, Jesus, because there's a great master. There's a great hymn, Anthony, behind me. There's a great hymn. Do you know, we'll do this in conclusion. Do you realize this, that sometimes we sing hymns and we just, we just, well, I know them. Come on, think about it. What does the hymn, And Can It Be, do? It goes, no condemnation now I dread. Where's that supposed to be? That's supposed to be somewhere in heaven. No, no, it's here, condemna- free from condemnation in this life. Why? How can that be? Jesus and all in him is mine. Mine now. How does that work? Because I'm alive in him, my living head. How can I know this? And I'm clothed with righteousness divine. What does that mean that I can do then? I can just live life like this. No. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown, the crown through Christ my own. Such was the hymn writer's desire to get this into your head and mind. He goes, and just so you forgot this right, I'll say it again. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and crown and claim the crown through Christ my own. Why don't you say, get lost to sin and why don't you live to the power of the resurrection that is in you? Amen? Amen.